0: If uh, if you were around a couple of weeks ago, you remember I kind of started uh, talking about the practice of silence and solitude. Remember that? As you hear um, silence and solitude, we're in that sort of living it series still. You know, that we started at the beginning of the year, a real long series talking about what it is to be a follower, a true follower of Jesus. And so what we've done now is we've stepped over into the actual practice, the actual, okay, so the the nuts and bolts of this. How do we actually work this out now? Um, And so we've started on silence and solitude. Perhaps a a good working definition of that would be spending intentional alone time with God. How are you doing with that? I, I, I don't know whether that's kind of like, Moved anybody um, over the last couple of weeks since we've been talking about that? Yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit myself. I I mean, I have. I've not been a very good person for like practices, spiritual practices, and things like that, I'll be honest. Um, I have moments, I have like seasons, I'm like, yeah, going for it, and then I have seasons where I just, I don't. But I've been really digging into it. You know, and I ended up in hospital. <laughs> That's not related, though. Okay, so. Uh... <laughs> but when, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how Jesus, you know, he takes that time. He took that time out to be in that solitary place, that lone place, the wilderness place with God. What we've seen is that. For Jesus himself, it wasn't just like a one-off moment, a one-off event for him. He was consistently back and forth into that solitary place with the Father. It's like a preparing and equipping place for Jesus. He needed that. He knew he needed that. And so he was constantly back and forth into that alone time, him and his Father. And it's just amazing. I also touched on... I don't know whether you remember, on the fact that, you know, if we intentionally slow life down, you know, if we're kind of bamming along at 90 miles an hour and we decide, okay, I need to take my foot off the accelerator a bit, maybe even brake, slow down, and intentionally carve out some time, alone time with God. If we actually do that, there is the potential to bring to the forefront or to bubble up to the surface a whole bunch of emotions and feelings, and and they can be feelings that A, you probably didn't even were, weren't aware they were there, or they could be feelings that we were aware they were there, and it, actually we were using the fast, the fast-paced busyness of life to kind of escape the you know dwelling on those feelings, and it just seems that when we bring ourselves into that you know just silence. Alone in me, my thoughts, and God. It just seems to lift the lid off something. And we experience all of these emotions and feelings. So creating that space of aloneness, silence, uh, silence before God, it does that. It allows all these emotions and feelings that we kind of sit on to come to the surface. It's in that place of silence and solitude that we discover who we really are in the flesh, so to speak. The good, the bad, and the ugly, all of that stuff. It's kind of like what we're like in the private sphere. Like we're, that's what we're like in, in that you know, quiet time with God. It's in the silence and solitude where we discover just how much we really desire God on the one hand, but also, we discover just how lacking we are for a desire for God. It's just this like m- dynamic, this mix in that place of e- emotion. Then, found in silence and solitude, is what I'm going to dwell on, dig into a little bit today, which could be a bit dangerous. <laughs> I realise, and as I say, some people I don't, don't want to go there. You know, I want to think about that. I mean, right off the bat here, it's, I just wanted to highlight that for us as human beings, we are like really emotional creatures. I was talking to, I think it was Tim, earlier in the week about this. We're really emotional creatures. I mean, emotional at a real complex level. Now, and I realise not, there's nothing revelatory in that statement. I mean, at the end of the day, to be human... To really be human is to feel. It's to experience emotion. To be human is to feel. But the thing is, as humans, we feel deeply. And how many people in here know that sometimes those emotions, those feelings we have, aren't altogether positive? Not always, right? Even for us as Followers of Jesus. I mean, yeah, we, we experience the happiness, joy, and the contentment, and all the things that we get through God. We get, it comes from God for the most part. But how many know that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of the joys and the happiness, that we can also know like undercurrents of sadness and worry and emptiness and feelings of being alone? I mean, for sure, I mean, some of those feelings and emotions, they're probably not telling us the truth at the end of the day. None of us are going to be alone. We None of us have to go through the challenges and the turmoil of life alone, especially being part of the family of God. We've got each other. <laughs> and more than that, we've got God himself. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But nonetheless, we still, we each of us, we kind of weather out such unpleasant feelings unpleasant emotions Henry Newen, Henry oh I haven't got the quote uh, come on, I'll just read it to her I quoted him last time the Dutch theologian guy priest from the last century he said this and trying to press this <laughs> bang I did it the other week it came off <laughs> um Our life is a short time in expectation, a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our lives. It seems that there is no such thing as a clear-cut, pure joy, but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of limitations. In every success, there is a fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness. In every friendship, distance. And in all forms of light, there is the knowledge of surrounding darkness. But this intimate experience is where every bit of life is touched by a bit of death, can point us beyond the limits of this ex- existence. It can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with a perfect joy, a joy that no one can take away from us. Oh, wow! What Newman is saying there, in a rather an uh, elaborate way, is even for us as believers, as followers, apprentices to Jesus, you know, even in this life and you know, this side of eternity, this side of. Um, resurrection, life can be good, but you never entirely escape sadness or pain as a whole, right? So that's the first thing that we all have in common, is we all feel, we all experience feelings, and it's a mix of positive feelings and a mix of of, of negative feelings, and sometimes we kind of hold them together uh, in life. The other thing that we have in common as human beings is that we nearly always we want to do everything we possibly can to avoid those negative feelings. <laughs> right? Does anybody really want to feel sad? No. We do everything we can. We run away from those feelings. We want to avoid negative feelings and feelings of loss and, uh, and sadness and depression. We run from it. Which means, if it's it's true that silence and solitude can lid the lid off Pandora's box, so to speak, if it can lift the lid off all of those sorts of emotions, I guess for most of you now thinking, thanks Rob, but I think I'll avoid silence and solitude. Won't go there. (laughs) Try to avoid it at all costs. The fact is, though. As we venture further and further in our journey of following God, we become more acutely aware of a tension within us. On the one hand, we feel that we're actually drawn towards god we're drawn into that place i really want to have that quiet alone time with god we got and it's kind of like a hunger that god has birthed in us he's put that in us and also the fact that we were made to be in relationship with our creator so on the the one hand we have that we're drawn we're pulled towards that but then on the other hand we're also aware that we're pulled away from that in the absolute opposite direction And we're pulled away by a whole bunch of different forces and things going on. Internal things, fear, insecurities, feelings of being not not worthy uh, to come to God. Feelings of doubts about God, feelings about the doubts of the goodness of God. Our feelings of being actually exposed before God, Him seeing us for who we really are. All those sorts of things. And, and that's just the internal things that kind of pull us away. And there's all the external stuff I talked about last time, all the distractions, you know, the busyness of life, the WWW, the iPhones, the Netflix, all these. And it's like all these things kind of conspire together to pull us away from that place of silence and solitude with God. And the problem is, of course, how I mean, we're kind of caught up in that tension and we kind of feel that push-pull uh, most of the time. But the problem is, is that most of us find it easier to actually go with the things that are pulling us away from that, if we're honest. I do. I, it's so much easier to... I'm just going to stick on a movie. <laughs> I'm just going to go escape. at something. Do something else, you know. So the question that I want to kind of address, ask this morning, is it possible to navigate our way through all these mishmash of feelings, of fears and insecurities? Is it possible to navigate through that, all the emotions that bubble to the surface and come out of the other side and experience a more of a freedom, more of a transformed life in God? The answer is Yes. It 's possible to navigate through that there is a pathway through that, but you know what It probably isn 't a pathway that looks like what you think it does well this morning i 'm going to have a look at the story of a, a guy in the Old Testament if you 've got your Bible and you want to turn to one Kings chapter nineteen 're um, looking at this guy he 's an emotional wreck okay he is uh, just emotionally all over the place. Um, and is I think, it is a real good place to start as we're kind of probing into this whole topic. He's a guy called Elijah. <clears throat> and we're going to take a look at what silence and solitude looks at in his life as he's trying to navigate through all the highs and lows of emotion uh, and so on and so forth. What's it look like for him? Now, as we do that, as we come into this story, I want us just to remember what I've just been saying there about how we can know success, joy, celebration, all those things in one hand, and, we, and it can be closely followed by, pursued by, or coupled with pain, fear, and lust. You know, that, that dynamic, that tension that we, we live with. So that's what we're going to look at. But just as a bit of context, a bit of kind of backstory to um, Elijah. Elijah is a Hebrew prophet, and he lived around about 800 years before Jesus came to town, so to speak. Um, he's living at a time where Israel was divided, as it often was. As you know, Israel was like 12 tribes. It was divided between the north and the south. We've got two tribes in the south. They were called Judah. Now, these the southern tribes, they were pretty faithful to Yahweh God. Led well. They were very faithful uh, to Yahweh. And then in the north, you got the 10 tribes. They were everything but faithful to God. I mean, they were just like led by a succession of evil kings leading them astray, leading them away from God uh, often. And actually, at the time where, that we're going to come into the story now, uh, King Ahab is the king there of the northern region. And uh, King Ahab, I mean, he's a, again, he's a real evil king. He himself is bowing to and worshipping the god Baal, which was kind of introduced through his Canaanite wife, Jezebel. Okay, so she was, uh, that was the kind of crux of the problem. No, there's, so that's kind of where things are at. Uh, uh, he actually did the despicable thing of setting up an altar to the god Baal right there in God's temple it was just horrific now elijah is god's prophet to that area to the north it got, elijah is god's mouthpiece his words of correction wouldn't you just love that job <laughs> thanks god that was that was his job now as we come into first kings 19 elijah is what we could be described as a well the pinnacle of his career is at a, a real high point of his career. Now, if you get a chance to read through the story from chapters 17, 18, and 19, it's a fascinating story. It's uh, really quite dramatic. Elijah has announced that there's going to be a period of time of drought across the whole of, of, of the, the area, the whole of, the, um, of Israel. It's like, it's not even going to rain for three years. It's not even going to get a drop of dew for the next three years. uh, Or at least until Elijah actually prophesies and speaks again and and so on. So the whole region is in a really bad place, okay? Three years of no water. Then those three years have moved on. And God instructed Elijah, uh, Elijah to call out Israel and King Ahab and 450 prophets, these false prophets that he's been listening to, he calls them, right, can you come up? We're going to go up onto Mount Carmel. Now, in essence, this is like uh, Elijah going into our pub today and saying, Oi, you, me, yeah, outside. No. He was kind of picking <laughs> a fight. Okay, that was the essence, and they knew that. They, they should, he was lining something up. Now, what Elijah does is he says to the prophets of Baal, he says, Okay, guys, right, we're going to set up two altars, okay? I mean, you can go and make yourself an altar, get a bull, kill it, and whatever, yeah, put it on. I'm going to do the same, create uh, an altar, kill a bull. And then he goes on to say, All Right, now don't set fire to it. Don't you do light it. What we're going to do is we're both going to call on our God. And whoever's God sends down fire and consumes the offering. That's the true God, okay. So that's the way we're lining this thing up. Well, the four hundred and fifty prophets they go bananas. They're like shouting, <laughs> prophesying, and calling on Baal. You know, yeah, come Baal, come down with your fire. And there is absolute zilch. Nothing. No fire. No nothing. Elijah. He's got a wicked sense of humour. He's a bit like me and. He kind of starts to taunt them. And he's like saying, hey, maybe your God's a bit deaf, like Rob. He's, maybe he's gone on holiday. Maybe he's just asleep. You need to shout a louder. He can't hear you and everything. He's just winding up. So they're like, yeah, you're getting, getting wound up. And they just shout louder and louder and louder. And again, there he's like nothing, no fire. So then it comes to Elijah's turn, and what he ends up doing is takes his altar and he digs a big trench around the altar. And he's got his bowl, he's chopped it up, it's all ready, it's up there on the altar. And he gets some folks to get some big jugs of water and pour it over the offering, over the altar and everything. And he's like big jugs, because it like, poured all over it, went into the trench, around the filling the trench. He said to them, do that three times. Now if you're like... Elijah's supporter. <laughs> You'd have been thinking, this is a bit nutso, Elijah. You know, you want something to light. You don't go soaking it with water. Water and fire, they don't kind of mix all that well. You want it dry. What are you doing? On top of that, if you think about it, this is a commodity. Man, they haven't seen water for three years. And he's got, like, he's doing this exuberant thing of chucking loads of water all over this thing in this extravagant sort of way, pouring out this water over everything. It just seemed nuts. What does he do? He does a single prayer. A single prayer. And fire falls down from heaven. Consumes the offering. Burns up all the wood. Burns up all the soil and everything. Even licks up all the water that is poured on it. Everything. Just consumed. burnt up. It's just incredible. Elijah ends up by having all these Prophet sees, he has them put to death, and then he prophesies rain. Rain's going to come, and it starts to rain again. First time in three years, it's incredible. So, like Elijah's life, he's like it's a miracle after miracle. He's saying God show up, doing incredible things, and it's there where we come into our passage now, and he's needed to he's just understand. He's had some incredible things going on with God. So 1 Kings 19 verse 1 says, Now Ahab, this is the the wicked, evil king, told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, one of those prophets that he had killed. In other words... By this time tomorrow, pal, you're dead. <laughs> it, was a just, it was an out and out threat on his life. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid. More accurate translation, he was scared witless. <laughs> he was scared out of his wits. It said he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, so he's now down in the, the southern region, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. We've come up to that phrase a few times just recently, haven't we? The lonely place, the uh, solitary place, the wilderness place. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and prayed uh, that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Does this compute with you? <laughs> this guy has just come from an absolute high of his life. He's seen God come through in incredibly powerful ways in one moment, and in the next minute, he's petrified, and he's running for his life. I've just had about enough. Come to the end of, end of my tether, I've had enough. But hey, how many of us know that life can be like that Sometimes. You can be going through life, and life can feel like a bit of a holiday. You're cruising. It's really like going well, success after success. And then all of a sudden, you can experience, uh, well, you receive a text message from that family member. Or, you know, it's just that, you, that piece of bad news comes along, and just all of a sudden, it's like emotional meltdown time. He was, but I was right up there a moment ago. I know that. I was like, that was like a week Thursday ago. I was like, I was cruising. I was doing great. Next week, I'm in hospital. <laughs> it's like, what's all that down about? You know, I don't know if you've been there or if you're there right now. If you are, if you have been there, if you or if you are there, are there right now? Maybe we need to lean into some of the wisdom of Elijah, who said. Goodbye to his servant. And that's kind of like a picture of community. He's saying, so long, community, for a moment. And then maybe we need to say, right, now I need to get into that wilderness place. I need to get into that solitary place where it's just me and God. And then what does Elijah do? I mean, he starts to pray. Okay, he's a bit of a short prayer, and it's not the most positive prayer. It's kind of a, I give up I've had enough, God. Take my life. I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he falls asleep. Second half of verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and he said, get out and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals. I presume there was some gluten-free option for him as well. But a jar of water. And he ate it and drank it. And then he laid down again. Went back to sleep. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him again. Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed here, if you used to kind of describe Elijah's time of silence and solitude, it wasn't really filled with a great deal of prayer, Bible reading. I'm not knocking those things, by the way. Okay, but did you notice what it was? Essentially, it was... Sleeping, eating, and drinking. Do it again. (laughs) Sleeping, eating, and drinking, day after day. Moving on. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached uh, Mount Horeb, Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, There he went into a cave and spent the night. So Elijah then, he has gone on his 40-day journey and he's ended up at this Mount Horeb. Now, another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is the place where people encounter God, okay? Throughout Israel's history, it is the place. Okay, if you think, about it, it was at the foot of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where Mountain, mountain? Moses <laughs> uh, encountered God in the burning bush, for example. It was also the place at the top where the cloud came down and he encountered God in the cloud and the lightning and, and all those sorts of things. It's where he received the Ten Commandments. So the mounting is the place of revelation. It's the place where you encounter God. And Elijah has been on this long, long, long journey. He's been walking for weeks because he, he's desperate to hear from God. He is desperate for God to speak into his life situation and to speak. Well, he's speaking to life. He's hungry. He's thirsty to hear and uh, hear from God, and this is what happens. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> I think God's quite fascinating. The word of the Lord came to him, and it wasn't some kind of word of encouragement, not an instruction. It was a question. What are you doing here? Now, when I read that, I was kind of reminded. This sounds like the same question that God asks Adam back at the beginning of Genesis. You know, when Adam rebelled against God, he's in the garden, and God's coming back, and he hides, and God comes up and he says, "Adam, where are you?" It's kind of like this same sort of question. At the end of the day, God does not not know where Adam is. It's just like he doesn't not know why Elijah is present. Uh, Elijah is present. Why he's here on the mountain? God's all-knowing. God's all-seeing. He knows all these things. But God asks the question because he wants you to know. He wants Elijah to know where he's at, why he's here. He wants us to know, you know, what are we about? What are we here? And that's what he's asking Elijah, and that's what he asks you and I, why are you actually here, son? Daughter, why are you here? And be brutally honest now. <laughs> it's like, be honest? Why are you really here? Underneath the surface, what are you actually doing here? Verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're all trying to call, kill me as well. I, just, I love the way the Bible is so honest and so raw some, sometimes. Uh, Elijah, this is kind of Elijah's version of you just kind of venting before God. Have you ever, ever done that before? Vent. Ah, vent before God. Ah. It's like, come on, God. I'm trying to do the right thing before you're here. I'm doing all the right things and, and yet everything around me is falling apart, God. What's going on? I don't know, what whatever it is for you. Maybe, I've lost my job, God. My family seems to be going through like a civil war at the moment. What's going on? This illness I have got is so debilitating. What is going on? What are you doing? I don't know if you've been in that place. If you're in that place now, good news, you're in good company. <laughs> you're in good company with people in the Bible, men, you know, godly men and women of the Bible. But we... All, yeah, We all experience that. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. God is like, go outside, take all your emotions, take all that pain, take it all with you. Go out, you know, take all your brutal honesty with you and go and expose that in the presence of God. Just, just allow the presence of God just to wash over all of that emotion, all of that pain all that hurt. Just, you know, be honest and just get in his presence with it. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. Now we don't know whether this actually happened or whether it was kind of like a vision that uh, Elijah saw, but the great powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shut the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came the gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's interesting. It's just that same question. Exact same question. It's like God saying, okay, let's try again, shall we? (laughs) You've done, okay, you got that off your chest. Okay, what are you doing here? But look at this. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down all your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's like exactly the same answer. I can only imagine that his tone was different, though. His attitude had now changed. His tone had changed. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way that you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Uh, Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Mehalah." I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this correctly, but to succeed you as prophet, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. This is kind of like God saying, I'm going to take care of it. All those issues, all those things, listen. <laughs> I've got it in hand, okay? <laughs> Verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there, found Elisha, son of Shaphat. Um, He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, like you do, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Very significant thing. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? That's a bit of a strange statement. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burnt the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. It is a fascinating story. The story of Elijah. And as you kind of walk through his story here, as you kind of like map your way through, what you can actually see is a pattern of events, a seven-stage pattern of events. Uh, and it's actually a pattern of events that we can expect to, to experience in our own lives, in our own silence and solitude, in our Sabbath observing, in our day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, outworking of our journey with with God. And this is the pattern. It's a pattern of resting, waiting, feeling, naming, hearing, being transformed, and then reconnecting with society or reconnecting with community. Now, that's what we're going to dig into, okay? So, how long have we got? <laughs> no. I'm just going to look at the first one today, but next week we'll finish up. We'll come back to this uh, we'll wrap it up. But the first stage that we see in Elijah's life is this phase, this stage of resting. Right back in verse 4, he said he came to that broom bush, this spray shrub thing. And the first thing he does is he prays. Yeah, Yeah, he prays. As I said earlier, it was a bit of a kind of terminal, I give up type thing. He was just emotionally bankrupt, man. He was just—he was exhausted. He was totally at the end himself, probably right in depression, uh, clinical depression, and so he couldn't even stay awake. That's what it said in the, in the next verse, isn't it? It said that he laid down, he fell asleep. It's like he had the only capacity he had is to say a simple, single, fatalistic, terminal, submissive, "Take my life" prayer. <laughs> I'm off to sleep. <laughs> And then the angel comes to him. The okay? angel comes to Elijah. Uh, and he you know, gives him a shake. And what does he do? He says, Come on, get up and pray. Get up and read your Bible, you slacker. And that's what you hear, right? You're in the wilderness. You can't read your Bible and, and pray more. Come on, get up. No, he didn't actually say so, <laughs> The angel said, Get up and eat and drink. So he did. And then he lay back down again, went back to sleep. And then the angel comes to him again. Elijah, get up, eat and drink. You need—you should be rested, but you need to be replenished as well. So Elijah actually gets up and eats, drinks, (laughs) sleeps. It's like that's that process. It's sleep, eat, rehydrate, go around it again. Now, I don't know if, if anything like this has happened to you before. So, you, you're like, every intention, especially as we've been talking about it recently, you've got every intention of coming before God in that sort of quiet place, the, the lonely place we go and you're, you can't, that's it, That's I'm, I'm going to do it. But you're emotionally whacked. <laughs> I don't know. And you just like, fall asleep. Have, <laughs> have you ever done that? I, I have. I've come into a quite, you know. Remember the uh, prayer soaking thing? It's kind of like silence and solitude, but it's a group. And, and many times I come into that place, just trying to get into God's presence. The next, thing, you know, I'm uh, Zed's going up from me. <laughs> it's like just emotionally wrecked, and perhaps you. You've been in that place, you like, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to get before God." but you're, tr- you're having to deal with some just e- exhausting emotional challenges, family stuff going on, work, related stuff going on. Your finances are just sending your head in a spin. You feel depressed, you feel so low. And I just feel as I just can't get through this. He's just trying it's like you're trying to keep up with life. And especially if you, you know, a parent, you just—I want, want to keep up with life, and yet I want to be a good mom, I want to be a good dad, and I want to be a good spouse and partner, and a good homemaker, and, and all these things. But I'm just struggling, and I'm struggling. I don't hear God's voice in all of this because I'm just so frantic. I Feel so emotionally burnt out that you just can't get in that place. So, what is the answer to that? What is it? Just try hard. <laughs> Push harder, pray harder, read the Bible harder, if that's the right, if you can do that. Wait, wait, you know, just try harder, is that the answer? Well, that probably was my answer, <laughs> you know, probably really right up until like a week Thursday ago, you know, I was suffering with a flu virus, which ended up with like the um, infection in the glands of my throat, and actually went on to be a real bad chest infection, and You know, I'm just like one of those persons. I've just learned to live with certain levels of fatigue, certain levels of, like, illness and pain. And and we do that, don't we? That becomes the norm. And we've learned to cope and and live with that. Until Thursday morning, it completely wiped me out, put me on the floor, (laughs) and I ended up in hospital until the next day. And so this week, uh, this, it's been a really weird week for me this, this week. Uh, it's been a place of just recovering. <laughs> and I said to Gareth, actually, on Friday, didn't I? I was like, I look back, and I haven't really done anything <laughs> this week. And that really bothers me as a person. You know, I was a design engineer in a previous life. Um, and, I, and so I always loved... Being able to look over my shoulder at the past week, month, or whatever, and look, oh, this is a product I've developed, or a design I've contributed to. or something. There's something you can almost put in your hand and say, I did that, and I had great value in that, and um, that was me. Uh, I guess the lesson for me, and maybe the lesson for all of us here, is let's restructure life around a new, healthier pattern of living new way of living. The message loud and clear to me is, Rob, you're going to be far, far, you know, a far, far better place. You're going to be better positioned to hear God's whisper voice, to actually hear his guidance, see his guidance for your life and your family life and for the church life if you are better rested. So for me, and this is kind of like... uh, is this all about my, like, my physical health, my physical well-being. What is it for you, though? What is it in your life that you are just gritting your teeth and pushing through? I'm just going to carry on. What pressures are you shouldering that are just emotionally taxing for you? Just tiring, pain, sadness, illness, work life, relationships. Have you just learnt to live with the effects of all those things and what they do to you? You just gotta kind of learn to live with that? Is it not time for you and me to get into the wilderness, to intentionally put ourselves under the broom bush, so to speak, rest, eat, and drink? And it, This is the thing. I mean, I don't know whether this is going through any of your minds. I know some people outside of the church that would uh, think this. I think it's a mistake in thinking, hang on, Rob, what you're talking about here is rather unspiritual. You're talking about sleeping, eating, and drinking. (laughs) That's really unspiritual, Rob. Can't we get onto some meat or something? (coughs) The thing is, we cannot separate our physical life from our emotional life and from our spiritual life. The fact is, even in the Bible, there is no word for that. There's, there's no concept for spiritual life. Nobody in the scriptures would come up to you and say, how's your spiritual life doing? It's alien. It's, there's no concept of that in the Bible. It's all integrated. To be human is to be holistic and integrated, you know, it's not that you have a body, you are your body. <laughs> and, you, you know, it's your, your body, your soul, your mind, imagination, your personality, it's all you. <laughs> and I've quoted him before, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says it's impossible to be spiritually mature whilst remaining emotionally immature. That's an interesting statement. It's impossible to be spiritually mature whilst remaining emotionally immature because it's all interconnected. It's all joined up. Our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, they're all tied together. Put it this way. How many of you, when you come to the end of your week, you know, if you work you're working week, and you've had a flat-out, exhausting week. How many of you think, right, that's it. I'm going to go fast now for the weekend. Or I'm going to go, you know, pray overnight. It's going to be an all-night prayer vigil. Or I'm going to just go study the Bible all day Saturday now. yeah, you've had this mad, flat-out week. How many of you did that? You know, when we're in that place of being overtired, we seldom have the energy to actually do the things that we know are going to actually be life-giving to us, don't we? Like fasting and praying and reading the Bible. Instead, it's like we only have the energy for the less than healthy, the escapist-type activities in our life, the overeating, over-drinking Binge drinking, binge watching TV, binge playing videos, watching all the wrong videos on the wrong channels at late at night and all those sorts of things. The problem is, is those things make us more unhealthy. They make us more tired. They make us feel depressed more about ourselves and what's going on. And we we become more easy picking for the tempter when he comes along. One of the greatest dangers to any follower of Jesus Christ is the exhaustion that comes from having an over-busy life. It's so true for my life. And so this, this part of Elijah's story teaches me, teaches us, that the best thing that you can do for your prayer life, the best thing that you can do, Uh, for your spiritual life, that that you could hear God more, see God at work more, is to go to bed early. As I say, as a late night person, as late night people, that is just so... (laughs) But it's so true. Go to bed early, or take a Sabbath, or very least, take a day's holiday from work, if you're able to, and just... Rest, take time out. Allow your soul to catch up with your body and everything else that's going on. Just rest. You know, our overseers in Coventry, we've we got a great relationship with them. But ever since we've had that relationship, they have always been on my case about taking a Sabbath. Every time we see them, you're taking time out, Rob? You're taking your day off? You have your day off this week, Rob? Yeah. Because of this. And It's just constantly, they're constantly on my heels about it. So that's, that's my challenge. That's my thing. But what about you? You know, As we come to our time of ministry then and reflection and self-examination, I want to ask you these questions. What changes do I need to make to my lifestyle? What healthy boundaries do I need to introduce into my lifestyle? What things do I need to cut out of my life? What things am I too emotionally connected to? Maybe it's nothing I should be dealing with in this thing or whatever it is. And how can I be in a better, healthier, rested place? I'm press on with this next week, if that's all right. Um, why don't we stand?